Welcome, everyone, to another uh, podcast, or should I say another 101 podcast episode of Dan Abrams's John Adams Under Fire. Uh, we have some uh, interesting stuff to share tonight. We are finally going to be at the heart of the first trial, the first of the two trials, rather, involving Captain Thomas Preston. But we're not going to focus solely just on Captain Preston's uh, trial alone. We have some other um, essential uh, matters that are what you call trial and jury-related material that should be discussed first because court systems alone or a system of having a um, court trial process just didn't happen overnight in colonial America. And, of course, when many Europeans came over to the New World at the start of the 17th century, they were all coming from England. After all, the English were the first to settle um, when it came to a New World settlement like uh, Virginia, Jamestown. So, the jury history itself dates all the way back to the 13th century, which I found um, quite interesting. So if you think about it, 13th century, uh, the jury system basically is a con- it was a concept of a defendant being judged by his peers. Now remember something, his peers. And who do you think his peers might be? Well, it could be people around him, but by also people of a higher um Ranking, meaning a a group of um, men who would decide his fate. Now, we have to remember, for many of years, those who served on a jury were only men. So, we, you know, we still have a ways to go by even the 18th century of the of the the thought of women uh, serving on a jury. Of course, that didn't come until much later in t- in time. But the juries, or should I say a jury system, came to England with the Normans. And the Normans uh, helped introduce a procedure known as an inquest. And what is an inquest? An inquest, well, when we think of inquest, it's short for inquiry. Or when we think of an inquest, it's like an, an investigation. So conducting an inquest is, you know, finding all the facts, getting all the information, and once you have all that straightened out, then it's time to present it to um, the formal, to your formal audience. But here's a quick, um, here's not not so much a quick, but a uh, bonus question. Do you know which group of people brought the jury system to the new world? Well, I can tell you this right now. It wasn't the group of Englishmen that came to Jamestown in 1607. And it might have been a good thing that they didn't because, as history has has taught us, that group of people um, didn't have a clue as to how to um, become, um, what do you call it, self-sufficient. Here they were so convinced of finding... Um, every known natural resource um, to mankind that was going to make them rich overnight, but yet they had no clue how to survive in the actual um, wilderness of its time. So we have to rule um, the group of men 
that came to Jamestown in 1607 out? The actual answer is the pilgrims. They are the ones that brought the jury system to the New World when arriving in 1620. I think it's smart that the pilgrims were the ones who brought the jury system. I say the pilgrims because they are the opposite of the Puritans. The Puritans are the ones who, uh, you know, would have come to Jamestown. And uh, the Puritans were the uh, ones who really wanted to reform the Anglican Church from within, or should I say the Church of England. As most of us know, pilgrims did not come to the New World for economic purposes, like their counterparts in Virginia did. The pilgrims came to the New World to escape um, religious persecution, which they had endured in England. You know, it's one thing to have been a Protestant, but just because you were Protestant, it didn't mean that you were entitled to the same, um, perhaps, religious freedoms like you were, like you would have been if you had maintained ties to the Anglican Church. So I think it's safe to say that the pilgrims, one reason why the pilgrims brought the jury system to the New World was so that they could um, be given the chance to have a uh, fair trial and represent, not just uh, representation, but to um, say that, hey, let's have a trial, Let, uh, not just a trial, but let's uh, present all the facts before rushing to judgment and uh, persecuting someone just because they are different from someone else who has um, a higher um, allegiance calling, should we say. Now, of course, the pilgrims, in their eyes, um, a jury was comprised of 12 men. And I think it's safe to say that to them, uh, the number 12 was a um, not so much a lucky number, but a number that... Um, that res resonated because the more men you had on a jury, the better um, the likelihood of either a jury reaching a um, unanimous um, verdict, but perhaps um, a better diversity of jurors who could um, differ differentiate their opinions from one another. So in other words, for the pilgrims, a jury system could not be confined into the hands of just one person. Um, if one person uh, decided someone else's fate, that meant, that meant uh, giving too much power to someone who could have the control just not over one person's life, but over um, any other person's life um, in general in the community. Uh, these are just my theories, but I do believe they sound uh, somewhat relevant and uh, accurate. Now, for the longest time, uh, up until the very end of the 17th century, Dan Abrams noted this in his book, John Adams Under Fire, it wasn't until about 1696 that defendants, actual defendants who had been accused of a crime, regardless of the size of the crime, it wasn't until the very end of the 17th century that defendants themselves were permitted to be represented by counsel. I often have wondered, why did it take so long? Well, one thing I do know is that um, if one had uh, done something wrong in their community, it was an embarrassment 
And it is safe to say that when an individual did something wrong, they went before um, the church. After all, the church, no matter whether you lived in Virginia or Massachusetts, for example, the church was an essential entity. Uh, For example, in Virginia, in the early days of Jamestown's uh, findings or establishment, uh, it was mandatory for people to attend church twice a day. And think about it. Uh, In Jamestown, as we all know, there was a lot of, um, what do you call it, Um, instability. And the only way to maintain proper order was for people to attend church more than once a day. A good example of of how church um, can be intertwined even in the court system was that um, my wife and I uh, saw an episode or or a particular episode of the series Jamestown 1619 about a month or two ago. And in the episode, an individual uh, committed a serious offense. It wasn't so much he committed a serious offense, but the bigger punishment was going before the church and facing the governor and his council of state, but also the whole community The whole community was at the church. This individual was forced to the realization that it was bad enough he screwed up, but the fact that everyone else knew about it, everyone else was summoned because they had to be told not to make the same mistake as he made. So he basically had to uh, present his, his case by his own self, but I also do believe that had someone else represented him at that time in the um in the early uh years of the of uh Jamestown's history it's safe to say that if someone else in the community represented him then that individual would have been seen in the eyes of of others as being equally guilty even if he had nothing to do with uh committing the actual crime the the message is that he himself would have said that, okay, it's all right for John Smith to steal other people's property. It's okay for John Smith to, um, to bear false witness in general. So the bottom line is, is that if someone sided with an accused in those early years, whether it was in Jamestown or Massachusetts, it would have been a sign of betrayal to the rest of the community and a sign of, um, not knowing what, not knowing um, where your priorities were in the, in terms of knowing what was appropriate and not appropriate to be tolerating, but I would have to say by the 1696 or the end of the 17th century, as the new world has greatly expanded, and 12 colonies are already established, the more colonies you have established under English rule the greater um, the likelihood that people are going to need to be represented, even if they have uh, done something that is not um, appropriate within within community standards as a whole. And get this, okay, by the end of the 17th century, given that we already have 12 colonies established, which colony still hasn't been established yet? Georgia. Well, by 1770, at the time that the Boston Massacre has occurred, the jury system that we know of today has started to become um, greatly woven. And and there is what we call um, an an establishment of 
fair and impartiality. But there is a unique term that that is associated with the establishment of what we call fair and impartial. It's called voir dire, the process of selecting an impartial jury. Now, why is this important? Well, it's one thing to have a jury, or I should say a jury of 12 men, or any number, because even in colonial times, depending on where you lived, juries did vary. It could have also depended on the type of offense that, um, that the jurymen were um, summoned uh, to listen in on. But it was common in many cases or instances where you might have had 12 men um, hear a case. The reason why impartiality is important is because if you put a group of men on the stage and they all want to favor one side over the other, then how can the other side have any equal opportunity, not only just to present their case, but to, um, but to basically say that, hey, um, what are the chances of my client being innocent? If all they're listening to is information from one side, then how can the playing field be even? So in other words, by being impartial, uh, you're having an open mind, and you're also weighing in every uh, every fact that is uh, presented. Because if facts are eliminated, then um, you run the chance of convicting an innocent person who um, should not be found guilty. Uh, it's like that old saying, it's one thing to convict four, four out of five men, but if you convict um, one of them, who ends up being not guilty, that is that is a uh, even bigger mistake. In other words, uh, history has shown that there have been many of people who have been wrongly convicted, and yet went to and yet still went to jail for um, x amount of time. And we have even seen that in today's society, where um, innocence projects have cleared people uh, who had spent many of years in jail for crimes they didn't commit. But there again, impartiality is uh, very important because without it, then how can um, jurors go about conducting um, proper hearings based off of the facts that are presented to them? Well, um, as for John Adams, being a lawyer is a very um, noble line of work to him. Uh, as mentioned from an earlier podcast, when he first attended Harvard, or should I say when he first started out there, he, he was deeply determined about becoming a minister. But in the end, he realized that the um, ministry field um, just wasn't for him because the teachings were too rigid. There wasn't a whole lot of um, free thinking. Makes sense. Hey, not, not that there weren't great ministers in his time. There were many, especially Jonathan Edwards, who was known for leading what was called the Great Awakening. But John Adams also had to face a very um, important decision, especially during his time at Harvard. He had to come to the realization that, hey, ministry isn't for me, so I've got to find something here quick because I can't stay in, in college forever. 
After all, think about it. People didn't go to college for seven years in those days. So, by becoming a lawyer, he truly found his ultimate uh, calling. So, does anybody want to know how much money John Adams could have made as a lawyer? Well, he wasn't making 50000 or more a year like some lawyers, or should I say not some, like a fair number of lawyers would in today's world. Well, how did John Adams get paid for his work? Well, I can say that uh, based off of uh, the book I read, John Adams got paid in uh, shillings. Most of us have heard what shillings are. It's an um, English coin. And how many shillings are in a pound? Twenty. That's a lot of shillings to make one pound. As a matter of fact, the first time I heard about this, um, what do you call it, um, equivalent ratio, was um, back in, I want to say back in 2006 it was. Uh, my wife and I had by that time celebrated our one-year anniversary we went to a place called Natural Bridge, which is probably about two hours uh, west of us, uh, on the outskirts of uh, Lexington, uh, which is in the southern end of, the, of Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. What is unique about Natural Bridge is that it's a um, man-made wonder. And uh, Thomas Jefferson, who is one of my favorite Virginians uh, to learn about. Of course, there are other Virginians whom I enjoy learning about, but Thomas Jefferson is up there um, in the top three, if I had to pick an elite category. I'll say that he's number one. But Thomas Jefferson in 1770, and how ironic, the same year that the Boston Massacre takes place, he uh, bought Natural Bridge from King George III, for 20 shillings, and I had learned at Natural Bridge at that time that 20 shillings would have been the equivalent of about $5. It may not seem like a lot of money, but in 1770, to have bought a unique piece of property, and we're not just talking 20 or 25 acres, but but any of you who have been to Natural Bridge know that it is uh, quite a uh, majestic sight to see, but Thomas Jefferson bought all of that for 20 shillings. So when you consider who Thomas Jefferson was, and Jefferson himself did come from wealth, given that his mother was a Randolph, to have to buy something for 20 shillings, that says a lot about not just who you are as an individual, but what your status is in society. Most average people or should I say, of the uh, middling class, or from a middling plantation family, or what we would call your typical commoners, those people could not afford to um, buy stuff for, you know, say, 20 shillings. They had money, but think about it. Those who could purchase something for 20 shillings often came from uh, what we would call the upper middle class or the... Uh, or what we call the wealthy. So, did, is it safe to say that John Adams uh, dealt with clients from all walks of life? Yes, he did. How much would you say that he charged to say to write a writ? Twelve shillings. 
He also um, did work for um, some noteworthy people, especially John Hancock, who was considered to be one of the wealthiest uh, merchants in Boston. And at the same time that this uh, that the massacre itself had taken place, and in the aftermath, believe it or not, Mr. Adams himself is ten- is um, involved with other cases. The irony, though, is that the the other cases he's involved in are not on the same level as the actual Boston Massacre trials. So remember, people, lawyers deal, even in today's world, deal with multiple clients at any given period of time, regardless of um, the case or matter at stake. But in John Adams's time, he was dealing with multiple clients, and the and regardless of how many clients he dealt with, he was getting the job done. But we also have to remember, too, that in his day, not every town or city, or I should say mostly town, not every town had its lawyer. Uh, So therefore, John Adams and any other lawyer would have had to um, ride the circuit, not only to obtain clients, but to even go... Uh, before court to uh, present um, their case. Well, if if you had John Adams as your lawyer and you went to uh, court in what was called a superior court trial, John Adams would have been paid 12 shillings. If it was for an inferior court trial, he would have been paid half of that, six shillings, Well, uh, you, we, we wonder, how is John Adams faring compared to other people, not from being in the law profession, but from other different professions? He earned more money per shilling's worth versus someone who was a carpenter who got roughly about five to six shillings a day, which, hey, that is still good whereas an unskilled laborer could earn three shillings or less. And then a sailor, uh, on the other hand, his earnings could be two to three shillings a month. So for John Adams being a lawyer and anyone else who is a lawyer, they were more likely to earn more shillings in a day's time than a carpenter or an unskilled laborer. But hey, not to knock down on the carpenters or the unskilled laborers, these are just rough ballpark figures. Now, who's to say if you were a carpenter, and depending on the the work for whom you're assigned to, in terms of, uh, let's say, if you were doing some work for a Mr. Randolph in Virginia, the chances are you'll probably get paid a lot more if you do the work right. If not, then say Mr. Randolph, for example, he'll probably pay you less. Or even worse, you may not get pay. So the bottom line is, the work, it's one thing to do the work, but if but for whom you're doing the assignment for would say even more about you as an individual. Well, um, here we are now at the uh, trial of uh, Captain Thomas Preston. But right before our our trial, here's something to point out. 
up until the Boston Massacre trials, there had been no such things, there had been no such thing, rather, as public prosecutor. For many years, it had been the job of a victim, of a victim, or the victim's family, to find a private attorney to present their cases. So, in other words, if the Jones family lost a loved one, they would have to go out of their way to find uh, an attorney who could handle their case for them. So, we think about it, a public prosecutor is the equivalent of a modern-day DA, district attorney, or if you live in in today's time, if you live in Virginia, Kentucky, uh, Massachusetts, or Pennsylvania, what we would call a Commonwealth's attorney. So, what is uh, Captain Thomas Preston being tried for? He is being tried for the following. He is being tried... um, the prosecution is trying him for um, for ordering his unit of uh, men to have to have fired into the crowd that resulted in the deaths of five civilians and the wounding of seven others. For the prosecution, was it an easy um, sell? Well, if you are the prosecutor, you would certainly hope that it's going to be a sell. The problem, though, is that there's no guarantee. Now, before I mention what the prosecution had to go up against, is it important in a trial to tell the truth? Have you ever heard of uh, people swearing, um, putting one hand on a Bible and then use, and then with the other hand um, giving a testimony to the um, sheriff or to a judge. Do you hereby solemnly swear to tell the truth and nothing but the whole truth? Yes, Your Honor. So, there's a term or a word called perjury. We hear it a lot today. But then again, it was um, it was something that um, did happen in the time of our forefathers, and and if it had happened, it was uh, not only frowned upon, it was um, it was seen as distasteful. Perjury is like lying, bearing false witness. If one had bared false witness. It basically put a man's soul in great jeopardy. And um, think about it. If, if you had lied, you all kinds of um, bad things could have happened. Well, you could have gone before a court. And you could have been um, given any kind of um, harsh sentence. Well, it could have perhaps meant uh, spending a day in the pillory. Or who knows, maybe even being branded. Now, I've never heard of anyone being branded for having been uh, found of uh, lying in 18th century. But that's not to say it could have happened. The 
the most important thing is that um, regardless of the crime at stake, if you were sworn to testify, you better have told the truth. Because if you hadn't, it probably would have been the last time you would have even been allowed in a courtroom or let alone even have a part in a trial. Telling the truth at a trial also was a way to earn your trust, not just within yourself and your family, but within, but within anyone else from the community as a whole. But uh, back to the prosecution of uh, Thomas Preston's trial. Many of the uh, witnesses who came uh, before um, the prosecution who were uh, testifying on their behalf, as a matter of fact, there were 15 men on stand. All of them gave accurate testimony. The only problem is that their testimony wasn't uh, accurate. It, there, was, there were flaws. There were um, inconsistencies. None of them could ever determine who, in fact, had given exact orders to fire into the crowd. Nor could any of them really accurately recall Captain Preston's appearance. In other words, none of these individuals had said, I recall hearing Captain Preston say, make ready, take aim, fire. Uh, it was even reported that Captain Preston might have even been seen from behind his unit. But there again, no one heard him officially say, make ready, take aim, fire. I know I already said it once a moment ago, but whenever I hear that phrase, I always think of the battlefield. I, I, I think of um, soldiers lining in a field, hearing their commander above them say, shoulders, arms, make ready, take aim, fire. It didn't happen that way on the night of March 5th, 1770. Is it possible, though, that Captain Preston, if he had been standing from behind once the soldiers started firing, is it possible that he could have whispered into their, um, whispered in a soft voice, make ready, fire? It's possible. But remember, not all eight soldiers fired at the same time. As mentioned from an, a previous pro podcast, uh, Hugh White, um, Private Montgomery, or should I say Hugh Montgomery, they had been hit with objects. And once they had got up, they were able to fire a shot or two into the air. Meaning that, hey, this is your warning you better be careful. You better disperse because we're we're not uh, we're not playing around. The next shot could be in a matter of life and death. So um, basically, none of these fifteen men on the stand could accurately prove that um, Captain Preston had ordered the squadron to fire. So if none of them could deliberately prove that. Captain Preston had actually ordered the firings to take place, then that is a victory right there for the defense. Well, as for the defense, the witnesses who came bef before um, the defense team, led by John Adams, 
None of them had heard Captain Preston give any direct orders to fire into the crowd. However, um, he uh, ensured members of the mob, and I say this because there were members, there were a couple of members of that unruly crowd on the night of March 5th. One or two of them had even gone up to him and said, you're not going to order your soldiers to fire into the crowd. And he said, absolutely not. As long as my men are not in danger, nothing will happen. They do, uh, historians do know that uh, some members of the mob crowd even went up to a soldier or two and said the same thing, except one person asked, is your rifle loaded? And he said, yes, it is. And then he said, do you plan on firing? He said, no, I, I don't plan on firing. Well, if you don't plan on firing, then why are you still there harassing? Think about it. The mob is testing the waters. They're, they're asking one thing, and the soldiers are saying something in terms of not only their defense, but supporting their um, the concerns of the mob. But the mob still keeps egging them on, not just with verbal uh, threats and insults, but with throwing objects. It's a double-edged sword. All the defense witnesses had unanimously confirmed and admitted that the mob and the crowd had shouted obscenities to hurling objects at the sentry, or should I say at the squadron who um, was defending their uh, post, being the customs house. The jury, in the end, had determined that Captain Preston did not give the order to fire but that the soldiers had taken matters into their own hands. And it is safe to say that the soldiers had no other choice but to take matters into their own hands. Why? Because after constant um, verbal harassment, verbal threats to having objects thrown left and right, there comes a point where the line has to be drawn, where... The opposition has to finally just say, enough is enough. We are not going to take this anymore. We have told you all to disperse. We have told you all that while, yes, our um, rifles are loaded, the problem now is that the message still hasn't come across. So what does that lead to in the end? The um, unimaginable. Yes, shots are fired. And yes, people's lives are lost, but at what expense did it come at? So, yes, the soldiers had taken matters into their own hands, but was it to say that, um, let, me, let me rephrase, did it have to do with self-defense or did it have to do with um, um, engaging in acts of... Um, what we call act for show? The answer is they they did it because of self-defense. They had to, um, and it was justifiable, they had to uh, defend themselves. 
Even some witnesses had said that the soldiers' lives were, in fact, in danger. It's one thing to get knocked down with an oyster shell. It's another thing to have someone come and push you to the ground. After about two times where something like that has happened to you, you have no other choice but to realize that, hey, the third go-around could even be worse. Well, for John Adams, this verdict, is it safe to say that the acquittal of Captain Preston, did it result in the loss of clients, and did it result in diminishing his image? The answer is no. The acquittal of Captain Preston did not result in anything negative. John Adams himself, I can admit, probably did feel very relieved that that uh, he did not um, that this uh, acquittal did not result in the loss of clients. That is, however, it is safe to say though that before this trial occurred, that there were that there were people who were not satisfied with why John Adams was um, representing um, the. Um, what we would call the unthinkable, being the eight soldiers who had uh, fired into the crowd. Lastly, it is safe to say that uh, Captain Preston's trial had come down to one single point. An actual order, or what I should say a direct order, which never had happened. Preston's uh, trial was more of a 101 trial, basically a 101 introduction trial to um, our judiciary system as we know today. However, more, however, the, um, the bigger trial will lie at stake, and that is something I will discuss in the next podcast for another time. The real trial, or should I say the real Boston Massacre trial in our next session will have to do with the eight soldiers who are brought to trial. And what, what all of us should know now is this. Are, eight, are all eight soldiers going to be tried together as one, or will they be tried individually, or will they... Um, or will their fate be decided on who fired the shots first? That is, which soldier fired first? Did Which of the eight soldiers had killed more than one person? Which of the eight soldiers um, was responsible for uh, chanting, um, not so much chanting, but making threats left and right to the point where they actually wanted to do physical harm to the people of Boston? In other words, we're going to have to find out, was there manslaughter? Was there a homicide? Was there even a conspiracy in the sense of, hey, did the eight soldiers act as one entity and say that, hey, we all want to kill the mob. We all want to, to kill as many Bostonians as possible. These are questions that are going to put uh, the jury in a very challenging situation. These are questions that also are going to shape 
uh, colonial America, not just in the present, but for the future. Because what lies at stake here not only is going to affect Massachusetts as a colony, but it's going to impact the rest of the other 12 colonies, whether they are neighbors of Massachusetts like New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island, or even New York, but also the middle colonies like Pennsylvania, Virginia, Maryland, New Jersey, to the south, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, this trial will not only just affect Massachusetts, but it will impact the rest of colonial America and really the future in terms of its relationship with our mother country being England. That is all for now. I look forward to another podcast session here soon. Stay safe and take care.